We're so glad to have you here with us this morning. Uh, that last lyric of that song, you are good, good, good. You are never going to let, never going to let, never going to let me down. How many of you believe that this morning? Yeah, all right, there's some hands in the air. Uh, if you're watching at home, if you're here in this room, there are some of you who actually, uh, many of us, if we're honest with our, ourselves, we say, I, I actually think that God has let me down. Uh, this, this is not the way that I wanted this year to look. This is not the way that life uh, should feel right now, and I don't like it. And so when we're going to talk this morning, we're going to open up God's Word this morning. We're going to deal with that emotion because it's in many of us this morning, and we're kind of wrestling through this. Uh, this week is a, an interesting week. It's a Thanksgiving week. It's supposed to look a lot different than what it looks like right now. Uh, we're not supposed to have half of us or, or more watching from home. We're not supposed to have uh, split ourselves up into different rooms in the building. That's just not the way it's supposed to be, right? And so uh, we do feel like God has let us down, but we need to be able to come back uh, to the truth of God's Word. Now, Thanksgiving is going to look different for many of us this week than it has in previous years. Uh, your extended family most likely is not going to be gathering like uh, you're accustomed to. And if you've got your extended family together, uh, there's always that one uncle or aunt or whatever, the, the one who has the craziest, wildest stories, the one who makes everyone else uncomfortable in the room. You're just never quite sure what it is they're going to say. Do you know who I'm talking about? You all have that person in mind? Uh, if you don't have that person in mind, just know that everyone else in the room or you watching at home, that you're the person that they have in mind. All right, so, so in my family, we have the uncle, maybe you have someone like this. In our family, uh, he, he has settled down a little bit now, but for my entire life, uh, he was a carnival man. Uh, where the, literally, the, the, like the circus comes to town, the carnival comes to town, and he's jumping on the back of the train car and going off with it, and we don't see him for months, years even, and he's gone. And um, he's just an odd fella, but it's, many times he'll be at those holiday uh, times together, and we celebrate together, and he's got the craziest stories to share. And so here's one this morning, if it's useful to you, next time that you go to the carnival, I, I learned a little bit of a trick about the carnival. Maybe you don't know this, but all the games are rigged. Did you know that? Did you know that? I, 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 you go, you don't necessarily, here's one game in particular that is rigged, and he showed me how it's rigged. And this is the game where you take the softball and you throw it in the bucket. And the buckets are kind of sit at a 45 degree angle. Nod your head if you know what I'm talking about. All you have to do is you pay a dollar or two, you throw the ball in the bucket. If you get uh, two or three of the balls in the bucket, then you win the prize. You win the big teddy bear, you win a $5 bill that's stuck on a tack board, something like that. That's what you win. Guess what? It's rigged. Didn't know if you knew that. I uh, hate to break it to all of you big carnival fans out there this morning. I'm ruining all of this for everyone. But what happens is uh, they'll tell you, they'll say, come on up. You'll be able to see. I want you to play. They'll gather people together, and they'll say, I'm, I'm so confident. You look so good at this game. I'm going to let you do a couple of test runs first to prove how easy it is, and then you can give me a dollar, and, and, and if, if that's the case, then you'll try to win it. So you'll take, and you throw the ball, and you throw it into the bin that's right in front of you, and it goes in, and it seems simple as possible to do. You throw the ball in, you do it twice, you do it three times, and he says, all right, you're, you're a professional. You want to do this. I said, all right, now put down your $5 and do the same thing. And you take the ball and you throw it in the bucket. And when you put it in there, what does it do? It bounces straight back. And you can't figure out, I just did it three times. Why isn't this working? Here's the, here's the gig. Here's what's going on. Is he told me, my uh, carnival uncle told me, that what happens is when they're, they're baiting you and they're pulling you in, they'll always leave one softball in the bucket. So that when you throw your other softballs, the weight of that one ball deadens the bucket enough that your ball will stay in the bucket. 
And now, when now you got money on the line, or they'll work the crowd a little bit, they'll let you win a couple of times, they'll always keep one in the bucket. But when they want to get you, and you put your $20 down, they'll take all the balls out of the bucket, and then you'll throw, and every single one of them will bounce out, and you'll look like a complete fool. All right? So now you successfully, aren't you glad you came to church today? You got something, a nugget of information is useful for you uh, next time you're at the carnival. I don't know what it means. All it means is don't play the game, I guess, because you're not going to beat that unless that happens. Uh, so if you'll imagine going back into maybe like the days where the circus comes to town. We, we do have circus comes to town, that type of thing. Uh, the guy who's out front building up the hype for behind the curtain over here, we have an incredible man with incredible strength, let's say. And the guy out front is working the crowd, like this would be my uncle. He'd be working the crowd, trying to get everybody to come in. You come and see, put $2 down, put $5 down, just come behind this curtain, and you'll see these incredible feats of strength. Uh, this man will be able to tear phone books in half. This man will be able to, to put a pipe in his mouth and bend the pipe in his mouth. Or this man will be able to do, I, I don't know what else he'll do. He'll do like push-ups with, with a person from the audience. He'll, he'll lift them above his head, or maybe 10 people from the audience. I don't know. And so he gathers all these people together. And what do you, if you're the, the, the crowd, you're, you're skeptical, right? And you're saying, ah, I don't know. Can you do, prove it? And he says, just give me $5. And you'll come in and he'll prove it just behind this curtain. And he keeps working the crowd and working the different angles. And as he is gathering people together, uh, you, at some point, uh, it seems like he might whisper to the guy and says, can you actually do any of this stuff? Because I'm doing all that I can to be able to pull people in here this morning. I'm doing all that I can to be able to build some hype, build some, some gathering. I'm pulling everybody together. You had better be able to do the things that you're advertising yourself to be able to do. So what that actually looks like for us this morning, context for us to see, that person out front working the crowd, if you will, is John the Baptist. John the Baptist starts his ministry by saying, Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. Come and see. Gather. Come, everyone come and see. You need to see this Jesus. I'm not even able to untie his shoes. He's, he's that important of a figure that you need to, to be able to see how important he is. And in some ways, wouldn't you think that he might lean over to Jesus at some point and say, can you actually do this stuff? Are you actually who you say you are? And you as the audience, and you here this morning, if you're watching online, you may be a skeptic. This Jesus that we're talking about. Then you're saying, I, I kind of doubt that you're able to do that. What's the gig? What's the trick? And in some ways, you want to be able to know and be sure uh, that there's proof. And what proof would you need? What proof do you need to go and see the man behind the curtain that you're going to put your $5 down or your $10 down? What proof, certainly, if you're going to give your life to this thing of being a Christian and being a follower of Jesus Christ, what proof do you need? Well, here we are. We're in week number 11. Can you believe it? Week number 11 in this sermon series on Matthew chapter 3, Matthew chapter 4 that we've called the new normal. And what we have is actually John the Baptist, he's been gathering the crowd, but Matthew, the author Matthew, has actually been building uh, the proof to be able to look at for us. Matthew's one of the 12 disciples of Christ, as we've talked about, and he, uh, in the end of his life, as he gets towards the end of his life, realizes that the oral traditions of Jesus that are being carried out and shared, that once that first generation passes away and dies, that there needs to be a, a documented form that can be distributed so that they are making sure that they are accurately portraying and carrying on the stories of Christ. And so he writes it down in the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. 
So in his life, what he has done is he had tracked, he has stayed with Jesus of Nazareth. And the argument that he is making, and it's not only is that Jesus of Nazareth is the son of a carpenter, but he's actually the son of God in the kingly lineage of Judah. He's very specific. He's very meticulous. He was a, a tax collector. So he takes the time, details everything out so that he is able to talk about this Jesus who had died a ransom for our sins. He was raised again on the third day and becoming victorious not only over the Roman oppression, but victorious over the very death that would hold him in the grave. And if we believe in him, that you too and I too would be victorious as well. Matthew's the first of our four gospel accounts in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all accounts of Jesus' movements and Jesus' activities here on the earth. He begins with the genealogy of Jesus, makes the connection to the birth of Christ, gives a small detail about Jesus' childhood, and then in Matthew chapter 3 and Matthew chapter 4, we see the beginnings of his ministry. And that's where we've been on this sermon series. And we've been able to see uh, John the Baptist declare that Jesus had come and that he was beginning to start his ministry. He's out in the, in the wilderness calling out uh, to, that those would repent because they need to repent from their sins and turn from their wicked ways and turn and follow Christ. And so then Jesus comes. He says, he's the one that I can't even untie his sandals, and he's here. And then there is the, the baptism of Jesus out there in the desert. And then Jesus uh, is baptized, and he's called the voice from heaven. says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then Jesus goes out into the wilderness. He takes on the, the, the Satan, the tempter himself, out in the middle of the wilderness. And comes back victorious. And then Jesus gathers his disciples who would follow him. And he says, come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And then where the next part of the book goes that we're not going to cover in this series is Matthew chapter 5. The longest discourse or the, the longest sermon that is, uh, that is recorded that Jesus preaches. And over and over and over again in that you hear him say, You have heard it said, but I tell you. He's making this contrast between what had been taught to them before and then how he was going to fulfill that in a different way perhaps than what they had expected. Which is where we get this sermon title, The New Normal. And at the end of things, he's going to outline and compel listeners uh, that Jesus is ushering a new way to live, Matthew is. And at the end of the day, we need to see that the new kingdom is at hand. That's what Matthew is trying to teach us in these chapters, Matthew chapter 3, Matthew chapter 4, setting it up. So this morning, if we're looking at the man behind the curtain, John the Baptist has gathered a crowd together. You're in the crowd, I'm in the crowd together. We're gathered together, and there's, let, let's say, if, if there's not someone here in this room, it's someone online, or certainly someone in their time from, they're a little bit skeptical. Is this Jesus the one that Matthew is arguing that he is? What would it take for you to believe in him? What proof would you need? And so our specific passage for us this morning, Matthew chapter 4, Beginning in verse 23, we're going to read it together. That's going to be the whole passage for us this morning. Then we're going to dig in a little bit deeper. It goes like this. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan all followed him. To Lord, as we open your word this morning, we pray that it would challenge us. Pray, Lord, that we would be able to see that you truly are the Messiah. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so if we look at these passages here, if we understand that there's skeptics in the crowd, whether there's skeptics here, again, in person or here 
uh, watching online. Uh, the question that, that we need to ask here, the questions that they were asking is, well, what if this Jesus isn't the king? What if this Jesus isn't the new king that he claims to be? Verse 17, we just read it. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. What if Jesus isn't the new king? Look at the language that he is using. He is repeating the very same lines that John the Baptist was, was, was sharing to everyone as he was gathering the crowd in. Then why would Jesus keep the kingdom of God at the forefront? Why would he always be talking about the kingdom of God? If Jesus isn't the new king, then why would it be that he would always be pointing people towards the new kingdom? He gives teachings and parables like this. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed. And he goes on to tell the parable how he sowed good seed and there was all the, the crops that came up. But the enemy, they came in and they sowed weeds and sowed tares out in the same field. And he said, someday the kingdom of heaven will be like when the harvesters come and they gather up both the weeds and the tares. And the tares, which is a weed, uh, that the tares would be burned up there in the chaff. You would know the difference between the good crop and the bad crop. He says, that's what the kingdom of heaven is like. He says, the kingdom of of heaven is like a mustard seed, which is tiny and small and insignificant, but as it grows, it grows into a strong tree that is going to last. We learn that the kingdom of heaven is like leaven. Thanksgiving is probably the only time that I know anything about leaven because my wife makes uh, sweet rolls, and so she, she puts the, in, in a couple of days, the dough starts to rise, and then she takes it off and makes her sweet rolls. It's the only, uh, we don't make bread any other time of year. We don't do anything like that, but we start to see the leaven rise. I see that in person in real time. And so uh, it says it's like leaven and it's growing into something larger and bigger than you could ever imagine. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that was buried in a field. A treasure that was buried in a field and, and the, the man was willing to sell everything he owned to go and to retrieve that treasure out of the field. So I'm going to buy that field because I know there's a treasure in it. And Jesus teaches that the kingdom of heaven is like that. He says that the kingdom of heaven is like the landowner. The landowner who, who went out early in the morning and said, I need someone to work the land and you can work for this price. And he went out in the middle of the day. He said, I need you to work the land. He said, I need you to work for this price. And there's people who came and they worked for that price. The same one as early in the morning. He went out multiple times during the day. At the end of the day, he asked someone to come with only an hour left in the work day. He says, I need you to come and work the land for this agreed upon price. And he came and he did. But then they got angry at each other. And they said, wait, I came and worked all day. How come I didn't get any more money, any more uh, wages than you did? And Jesus says, the landowner can do whatever he wants. Didn't you agree to come and work for this price? He says, the kingdom of heaven is like that. So what if Jesus isn't the new king? Then why would Jesus keep teaching again and again and again and pointing to this new kingdom and keeping that kingdom forefront? What if Jesus isn't the new king? Well, let's ask this. What if Jesus isn't a great leader? Wouldn't he need to be a great leader? If he is the Messiah, wouldn't he need to be a great leader? Matthew 4.19 says this. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and they followed him. What if Jesus isn't a great leader? Well, then why would Jesus spend all of his time making sure that his disciples stayed focused on this one thing that he called them to right at the very beginning? He said, come follow me, and I will make you what? Fishers of men. He says, this is the thing that we are going to do. This is what great leaders do. This is what great leaders do. They always point their men, point their team, 
point, the battlefront that they're always going towards, the focus position at the end of the game. What is the end game? What is the main thing? Keep the main thing the main thing. That's what the leader is going to do. Jesus says the main thing that you are going to do, the main thing that we are going to do is we are going to go and we are going to make fishers of men. We are going to gather those. And he does so because he illustrates for them before he even calls them their fishermen. Right, The night that he calls most of them into uh, the ministry to be disciples with him, they, they get the largest catch of fish that they have ever gotten. Their boats are filled to the brim. Fish everywhere you look. Their nets are, are straining under the weight. And he points to them and he says, that's what you got when you were fishing. He said, I'm going to teach you how to be. I'm going to make you, mold you how to be fishers of men. And you will have a greater harvest than that. He walks them through the fields. He says, look, the fields are wide into the harvest. Pray that there would be some that would be sent out, that there would be, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Let's get out into the harvest, even more so than the harvest of fish that you saw, even more so than what you ever believed. Uh, you were going to be able to go out into the harvest. I'm teaching you how to be fishers of men and gather men to myself. This is the thing that you will devote your life to. So what if Jesus wasn't a great leader? Then why was he so focused? when he kept working with his disciples again and again on who they would be. What if Jesus had nothing to say? What if Jesus had nothing to say? Look what verse 23, the same passage says. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and sickness among the people. So news about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, and those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed all of them. What if Jesus had nothing to say? Well, then why is he keeping the good news so accessible to all people? Why is he keeping the good news accessible? So he is going out. There are people who are hurting, and he is doing miracles. Those are, who are lost, and he's helping them find their way. Those who are in, in tremendous personal discomfort, and he is making things right. And he is doing so for the Gentiles, for those who would never be allowed. He said, uh, one of the Gentiles asked me, he said, can I pick up the scraps from the table? And he says, well, the dogs are allowed to do that. And he says, come, come on in. This is the good news. It's available to all. This is in Matthew chapter 4. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus talks about the end times. And he talks about how the good news of the gospel would be going out for all nations, for all people, that it was available to everyone, that that's what would happen in the end of time. This is the good news. And it is available to all. This is the gospel. And as it begins to spread, one of the most beautiful interactions that we see in Scripture is John chapter 4, the woman at the well. When Jesus talks to her and she says, well, there's certain ways that we have to worship. Then you Jews have a certain way and we Samaritans have a certain way. But what does Jesus tell her? He says, you will learn to worship both in spirit and in truth. The gospel is available to you. He had something to say. One of the most familiar parables that he teaches, the, the parable of the good Samaritan. Because that was what he wanted to make sure that people knew and understood that the gospel was available to everyone. The hero of the story was the Samaritan man. That who, who would be farthest away from the worship at the temple. Be farthest away from the religious rulers of the day. And he was the one who was going to have the gospel available to him. The gospel was available to the tax collector. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree. What does Jesus tell him? He says, today... I'm coming to your house today. Go get prepared because I've got some good news to share with you. The author of the gospel that we're reading is also a tax on Matthew. When he meets
come follow me. Matthew gathers people together in his home, and, the, and, and all of the critics are saying, Jesus, why are you meeting with all these tax collectors and sinners in Matthew's house? As Matthew writes these words down, he says, there was good news for me here today, and I want to share that with you. What if Jesus had nothing to say? Well, the truth of the matter is, he did. And what he had to say was that the good news was available to all. What if no one followed him? What if no one follows him? He may have something to say. He may be a good leader, but what if no one follows him? Verse 25, however. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan all did what? They all begin to follow him. But what if no one were to follow him? Then why would Jesus keep the attention of everyone? Jesus keeps the attention of everyone everywhere he goes all the time. They are always watching this man, Jesus. His ministry begins in Galilee. He is there close to home. But when it's listed here, we see that he is, he is also reaching the Decapolis. That is, those are ten Greek cities or ten Gentile cities that are there in the region. And they are coming and they are listening and they are following. They are all looking to see what Jesus is up to. Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the Jewish religious center, and there is where even as a 12-year-old, he is sitting in the temple debating back and forth with the religious rulers of the day. And he has something to say, and they are paying attention to him, and they don't necessarily like what he has to say, but they are paying attention. The Gentiles, those who are lame, those who are lepers, those who are sick, he is always keeping their attention. What if no one follows him? Well, they are. They're coming from all around the region to do what? Region across the Jordan, they all came to follow him. What if no one believes him? What if no one believes him? He is saying some tremendous things. He's not saying he's a good teacher. He's not saying follow my teachings. He is saying he is literally the son of God. Matthew is documenting the fact that this is what Jesus claimed to be, the son of God, the son of the most high. What if no one believes him? In the Luke account, so we got the temptation of Jesus, and then we get the ministry of Jesus. And in the Gospel of Luke, we get in between. We get to see his interaction there in Nazareth with his, his hometown. Check this out. Chapter 4, verse 16. He went to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, so it's his hometown. On the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found a place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim what? The good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were locked on him, fastened on him. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, he rolled up the skull, gave back to the attendant, they sat down, the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened. He began by saying to them, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Did they believe him? Why would his fame go on beyond his hometown? Well, what happens there in his hometown? What if no one believes him? They didn't believe him. They didn't want anything to do with what he was saying. Why? Because could something special come out of it? They, they were asking the question again and again. We know this guy. He's the son of Joseph the carpenter. He's claiming to be the son of God. 
And what he opens here is Isaiah chapter 61, and verbatim he reads these words, the Spirit of the Lord is on me, he says. He has anointed me to proclaim what? The good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind. And he says, the Scripture is being fulfilled here. And he goes on and he says, they're not listening to him. They're not paying attention to him. And he gives the illustration. He says, Elijah, you remember Elijah? He's the prophet of the Old Testament, the prophet of the Scriptures that you know and you believe and you trust. And he says, weren't there any lepers in his town? Weren't there any sick in his town? Weren't there any widows in his hometown? And just like Elijah, Jesus says, there were. But that's not where healings occurred. That's not where the miracles occurred. As he left his hometown, as he went to other parts of the region, that's where you see Elijah helping with the widows. That's where you see Elijah healing the lepers. That's where you see him doing tremendous things for God's sake. And so he compares himself to Elijah. And his fame goes beyond his humble hometown. Because what happens after that? The end of Luke chapter 4. Do you know what happens? What happens at the end of that is all of the city leaders, all of the religious rulers work up the crowd. What do they do? They gather the crowd together. They grab a hold of Jesus and they try to throw him off the edge of a cliff. So we don't want you. We don't believe what you're selling here. And as they do so, one of the most beautiful things in Scripture, it just says Jesus disappears into their midst. I have no idea what that looks like. I don't know if they had a hold of him, and the next thing they know, they have a hold of each other. I, I, how did it happen? I don't know. Did they throw him off the edge, and he just froze in midair and just walked himself back onto the side? I, I don't know. But they were unable. And don't you think they began to believe what he was saying after that? So he goes to Capernaum. And in Capernaum, it says what? Now they were amazed by the authority by which he taught. What if nobody believes him? Well... Maybe they did. What if he isn't the Messiah? The skeptics, those who want to see behind the curtain, they say, well, what if he isn't the Messiah? You see, in Matthew, if you weren't paying attention, so the beginning of Matthew opens up and we hear John the Baptist. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. You need to see him. And then we have Jesus. He is baptized. A voice from heaven comes down. And then we don't hear anything from John. He disappears. We lose track of him until Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, we get the update. Jesus has been out. He's been begun, begun his ministry. We find out where has John been. Matthew chapter 11, 1 through 6 says this. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to do what? To teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Wait a minute. This is John the Baptist, friends. He's the one who is out in the desert gathering everybody together. He's the one who's out in the wilderness saying, you've got to see this man. You've got to see him. I'm the one who comes. I'm preparing the way before him. The road has been prepared, and now the Messiah is coming in afterwards. And John the Baptist is the one that says, wait a minute. Are you the one He's confused. Are you the one or should we expect someone else? He said, I've been preparing the way. I've been preparing the road, but it doesn't look the way that I thought it would look. What's he referring to? Look, look at some of the things that John has been seeing. He's been seeing this. He's been seeing Jesus choosing the kingdom over the castle. 
What do I mean by that? Jesus is not setting up a place for him to rule and to reign. He keeps talking about this kingdom. He says the kingdom is near, the kingdom is at hand, the kingdom is available, and the kingdom is off in the distance, and it's present, and they're very confused by it because Jesus has not set up a throne anywhere. He's not set up a castle by which to begin this kingdom from. And John the Baptist cannot quite figure out what that means. Jesus is choosing the few over the many. When Jesus is beginning to gather large crowds, he keeps pulling away. Even when, when he is he's gathering people together, he is constantly saying, I need to go and explain this to my 12 disciples. The 12 disciples, particularly the three disciples of, of James and Peter and John. Wouldn't someone who is coming to rule with a sword in his fist and be the king that they were waiting for him to be, wouldn't he be there talking to the masses? Jesus isn't. Jesus is choosing weakness over strength. He's saying things like, the last will be first and the first will be last in the kingdom of heaven. That's very confusing to John. He says, that's not what I was expecting. You know what else Jesus is saying? Jesus is saying that if you're going to follow me, I need you to take up your cross and follow me. Go to the electric chair for me. That doesn't make any sense. John the Baptist is confused, and he asks this question. Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? John the Baptist is asking this question. Why is that important for us to see? Because John the Baptist was there when the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus like a dove. John the Baptist was there when the voice from heaven said, Behold, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And he still had doubts about the Messiah. You may be here this morning and you may have doubts. You may have concerns. And you need sometimes to whisper off the side and say, is, are you who you say that you are? Look at Jesus' response. Verse 4, Jesus replied, go back. Report to John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. He says, don't let me trip you up, John. You need to understand that these things are coming true. So what if he isn't the Messiah? Well, why would there be evidence beyond a shadow of doubt that he is the Messiah? We use that terminology in a court case. We say, do you have reasonable evidence beyond a shadow of doubt? Something that would, would really just put any question in your mind. And he says, no, I want you to know that he is the Messiah. So not the question, what if he isn't the Messiah? What if he is the Messiah? Then what would that mean? Well, when he quotes these things, it's a familiar passage to John the Baptist and maybe a familiar passage to many of you, but it comes from Isaiah chapter 35. Check this out, talking about the coming king, the coming Messiah, the coming Savior. Verse 3, strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance. With divine retribution, he will come to save you. Isaiah is the prophet. And in many ways, the city is burning to the ground or is about to burn to the ground. And there's this illustration of as it's burning, there, there's blessed are the feet. There's a man running back to the city. He says, there's good news for you. You need to hear this. It's not going to be right now, but you need to know that there is restoration in the future. And this is how you will know it. Verse 5. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame will leap like a deer, the mute, the tongues will shout for joy. What if he is the Messiah? John the Baptist hears these words, and the list is exactly the same. 
The blind will see. The deaf will hear. The lame will walk. And the Isaiah passage says they not only walk, they will leap like deer. The mute will raise their voices and sing. He is the Messiah. This is what John the Baptist hears and is encouraged. And he goes from being in a position of doubt to understanding that he is being delivered. So we ask you this question this morning. So what if the stories are true? What if the stories are true? What if what we're reading in the Gospels are true? Wouldn't it change something for you? You see, for John the Baptist, when he hears this, when he gets this declaration that the blind would see, the deaf would hear, the lame would walk, when he hears that, he knows that Jesus is the Messiah. But guess what? Here's the dirty little secret. John the Baptist will still die in that prison. John the Baptist, for taking a stand, taking a godly stand against the king in an unhealthy and an ungodly marriage, the way that he has set himself up to say, this is not proper, this is not right, he would be beheaded there in prison. Does that make things any less true? Does that make these declarations about the coming Messiah fulfilled in Jesus Christ any less factual? Because if the stories are true, then wouldn't that change the way that you live your life? Wouldn't that change the way that I live my life 2,000 years after John the Baptist died there in the prison cell? Wouldn't it change things? Because if the stories are true, then here's what Revelation chapter 21 says. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard with a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. As the band comes down, we're going to sing in just a moment. But this is the truth of the matter that we need to be grasping a hold of this morning. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And he who is seated on the throne, that's Jesus, he says, I am making all things new. And he said this, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. What if the stories are true? What if the stories are true? Wouldn't that change the way you live? What if the stories are true? Then what that means is that Jesus makes all things new. Jesus makes all things new. Now how does that change our response, your response, John the Baptist's response, the, the, the author Matthew, as he responds to Jesus, he says, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, through, through the word of Peter. What if the stories are true? Then Jesus makes all things new. What's the bottom line then? Because here's, here's the reality. COVID still exists. Cancer still exists. We got to get away from this idea that because God loves us, nothing bad happens to us. When Jesus talks about John the Baptist, he says, there has not been a greater man to walk on the planet. No greater man has been born of a woman, he says, than John the the Baptist. And yet he let John the Baptist go through tremendous suffering. COVID still exists, friends. Cancer still exists. Poverty still exists. 
Pain still exists. Anxiety still exists. Death still exists. And yet, we have hope because we serve a God who makes all things new. And so as John the Baptist had gathered people before and he said, behind the curtain there's something special going on here. And Matthew gives us evidence to it as well. I pray that this morning, that through God's word, through his Holy Spirit, that he would be able to help you see, help you interact, even on the days that you doubt, because John the Baptist had those days. Be reminded that the blind see, the deaf can hear, the lame can walk, the beautiful things that Jesus is up to, the good news of the kingdom of God. The kingdom is at hand. Dear Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. We pray that we've been challenged this morning. Lord, we know that you make all things new. Teach us to grab a hold of that truth, even on the days when we doubt, even on the days that we have concerns. Lord, the evidence is clear. It's here before us. And through Matthew, Lord, you have made it evident for all to see. And so we thank you for that this morning. There are trials in our lives. There are concerns that we have. There is pain. There is suffering. But the bigger story being told, the context is much larger than us here on this earth. But there have been billions of people who have walked on the earth. They've gone through things like COVID-19. They've gone through sickness. They've gone through tremendous amounts of suffering. They've gone through the Holocaust. They've gone through the changeover of terrible empires and death and genocide. And yet at the beginning of it all, God says, I'm the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. And at the center of all time, there is this one figure, Jesus. But let us put our trust in that figure today. Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away 